electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Big Tech and Small Business. Washington turning up the heat on Silicon Valley. Alphabet, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, all facing multiple investigations from the DOJ to Congress to state attorneys general. Virginia Democrat Senator Mark Warner says politics in the Trump White House could be at play. If the Justice Department reforms are going to be led by Justice Department professionals, that's one thing. I just feel that Mr. Barr does not have much credibility left in, frankly, on both sides of the aisle these days. And as the U.S. takes tentative steps toward a reopened economy, the health of small businesses crushed by COVID-19 and social crisis. Operation Hope's John Hope Bryant. Black folks have been doing so much with so little for so long, we can almost do anything with nothing. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, big tech's tug of war with Washington, D.C. Last month, Twitter broke years of precedent in a decision to fact check President Trump's tweets about voter fraud. What ensued was a whirlwind from the Oval Office to Silicon Valley to the Department of Justice and all the online platforms in between. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey defended his decision to censor or flag content on the platform. And Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg on Squawk Box maintained his platform's right to moderate the content posted there. In general, you know, we've tried to distinguish ourselves as um, probably being one of the tech companies that is the most protective of giving people a voice and free expression overall. Um, there are, there are clear lines um, that, that map to specific harms and damage um, that, that can be done where we take down the content. But, but overall, um, including compared to some of the other companies, um, we try to be more on the side of giving people a voice and free expression. President Trump subsequently signed an executive order seeking to scale back the Communications Decency Act's Section 230, the legal framework set up in the 90s that grants these internet platforms the freedom to make moderation and censorship decisions in the first place. Thank you very much. We're here today to defend free speech. Shortly after that, the Department of Justice unveiled a Section 230 rollback proposal for Congress. And shortly after that, Facebook, in its first move of the sort, removed a Trump re-election campaign ad for displaying a symbol once used by Nazis in World War II. Twitter and Facebook also flagged and then removed a video, the quote, racist baby video that the president tweeted last week. This was an altered version of an adorable viral video you've probably seen of two toddler boys running towards each other. Told you, a whirlwind. And at the center, what Recode calls the legal backbone of the internet. That's section 230. Here's Becky Quick. Senator Mark Warner is spearheading a number of efforts to try and regulate big tech, and he joins us this morning. And Senator, it's great to see you. Good morning. 
Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening. And I guess maybe we start with what the Department of Justice is doing in terms of going after Section 230. That's legislate or that those are rules that were written decades ago that were there to protect some of these Internet startups that are out there. But at this point, it's been turned into kind of a protective layer that that keeps some of the most profitable companies on the planet um, out of trouble and and not liable for things that are posted on their social media sites. What do you think about what the Department of Justice is now doing, because I know you've been critical uh, of some of the 230 protections in the past. Well, you're right. 230 was put in place in the late 90s uh, when these platforms were startups. It made sense at that point. But now it's kind of a uh, shield of invulnerability that says, uh, even though, you know, for example, that Facebook and Google, 75% of Americans get their news from the, some or all their news from those platforms, they have no responsibility for content at all. And this kind of content protection has, frankly, led to a a whole series of harassment activities. It has led the civil rights community to say, hey, you know, these kind of protections that say you have no responsibility at all to have any say over your content the way you appropriately do for your network. um, It just doesn't make sense anymore. So I've been pressing Section 230 reform. The Justice Department has taken on their own efforts But the Justice Department's effort seems more driven uh, by Donald Trump's political wishes rather than a rational theory of the case. And quite honestly, I don't trust anything that comes out of the Justice Department where Bill Barr is the leader uh, because he clearly has shown time and again he'd rather protect Donald Trump than actually enforce the laws of the country. So a Barr-driven 230 reform I don't think makes much sense, a bipartisan um, congressional reform. Uh, count me in. Senator, I, I read what the Dep- Department of Justice put out, and despite all the rhetoric that's gone around this, I mean, it looks like it's doing some of the very things that you've said you'd like to see. It's rolling back protections if, if there's child pornography, uh, child exploitation, terrorism, online cyber stalking. I mean, those, those are all things that seem pretty good. So Somebody what's wrong what, with going remember, ahead and, and, remember, and doing some of these things since the Senate has not, the Senate and the House have not been able to come up with something well, that they could uh, agree on? Let me let me point out some of the things you may not you may have missed that you know we already have protections on content against child pornography. We already have content uh, protections against terrorism. We already have legal uh, protections against um, sex trafficking. Congress did act. I don't and, think and yet- enough, enough. But let me finish. Let me answer your question. Um, no. Some of the other things okay. that have been proposed by um, by the Justice Department, I, I think, makes sense. I mean. Cyber, uh, cyber stalking, some of the harassment activity. And my concern, quite honestly, is um, if, if this Justice Department reform was being done by the career professionals, you know, again, sign me up. If it's going to be driven and directed by Bill Barr as an agent of Donald Trump, that's not the kind of um, unbiased reform I think we need. What I will point out is despite the protections that are out there for things like child exploitation, the problems have gotten much worse on the Internet. It it seems like there should be ways to hold big companies accountable if they're taking part in any of that. And any concerns you might have about the Department of Justice, we we have not seen bipartisanship that even though it's been talked about, we we have not seen anything that's come and that's passed on this. So what what do you do about it? How do you reach out to your fellow senators and maybe reach across the aisle? I think that is a a fair comment beyond even Section 230. I've got bipartisan legislation called the Honest Ads Act that says if somebody posts political ads 
on Facebook, they ought to have the same reporting requirements as if they post political ads on CNBC. That's seems just equality of treatment. Mm-hmm. I think we need to also have I've got something called the Access Act that says, let's make sure that if you're tired of Facebook or tired of how Google treats you, you can move all of your data easily from one site to another, data portability. The same kind of things, I was an old telecom guy that happened when we had number portability uh, back in the 80s and 90s that opened up to a degree the telecom market. And along with that portability ought to come uh, interoperability. So you can still talk to your friends if you, even if you move to a new platform, if you have still friends on, on Facebook, again, bipartisan. I've got another bill that we call the Access Act that says, you know, uh, actually on the, another le- legislation, not the Access Act, that frankly says, you know, you ought to have a right to know what your data is worth to these companies. So a lot of transparency requirements that I think make common sense. But your, your critique that Congress has not acted, even on the Honest Ads Act, um, is a reflection. Uh, frankly, it frustrates the heck out of me because there is a lot of bipartisan interest. And yet we still haven't seemed to be able to bring something across the finish line. Senator, I'm just trying to, to, to figure out, it's just a hypothetical. Let's say the worst case scenario comes to pass and, and Donald Trump were reelected and Bill Barr were still attorney general. You're going to just take any dealings with the Justice Department, any issues whatsoever, no regulation whatsoever of any of these issues, as long as Trump and Barr are still in the position no. where they'd be? Would you just take off the next four years or, or you'd trust no, abs- them? No, a- absolutely not. Okay. As somebody who's consistently been about bipartisan reform, put forward legislation, works with the administration, you know, for example, a half dozen provisions of the CARES Act. I, I negotiated with uh, Steve Mnuchin, who I think has been a very fair guy as Secretary of Treasury. You know, my concern, though, um, if the Justice Department reforms are going to be led by Justice Department professionals, that's one thing. Uh, I just feel that Mr. Barr does not have much credibility left in, uh, frankly, on both sides of the aisle these days. Senator, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the other issues that we're facing. We know that uh, there's been concern among the tech community. And again, this is a community you know pretty well because of your past history as a telecom venture capitalist. There's been a lot of concern about the H-1B visa program with the idea that there's not going to be new ones issued through the end of this year. This was originally a 60-day program. Uh, The president just renewed it and said it's going to last through at least the end of the year because he is concerned about the job market here and uh, Americans losing out in terms of jobs uh, that, that, that would be going to people who are coming in on visas. So what, what are your thoughts? What do you hear from the tech community? I know the Chamber of Commerce has pushed back pretty significantly and said they think this would hinder the economic recovery. Well, I, I agree that this is not only a concern of the tech community. It's a concern of the chamber. It's a concern of the business community writ large. I mean, we live in a global market and where our value add actually is who has the best talent, who's got the best human capital. Um, I think our, the H-1B program, while there are reforms that could be made, the idea that we're simply going to shut it down, uh, I don't think is going to add to American growth. I think we still want to be the place that collects the world's brightest, most innovative, most entrepreneurial talent. I think that's been our history. Um, and again, uh, this has been a position that's generally been held by most par- both parties and frankly, for the most part, has been even strongerly, stronger advocated for by my Republican colleagues. And so I think the um, Mr. Trump's decision here is uh, appears to be playing into his 
you know, idea about being anti-immigrant across the board. I think at the end of the day, it'll hurt our economic recovery. Do you hear back from any Republican senators on this? Do you think this is something that there would be legislation that you all would propose to kind of push back on some of these issues? Whether there'll be legislation in a way, immigration has kind of been the third rail. Uh, you know, five or six years ago, I was part of a group of 69 senators that put forward bipartisan uh, immigration reform from top to bottom, would have dealt with the undocumented, would, would have dealt with dreamers, would have dealt with H-1B. I still think it was a pretty good start. I, I wish we'd go back to that. Whether um, in the four months uh, that remain before the election day, there'll be enough pushback uh, to overturn um, Mr. Trump's decision about uh, H-1B visas will, will depend. But clearly there is the vast majority of Republican senators are on record as supporting the H-1B program. Senator Warner, thank you for your time today. It's good to see you. Great to see you guys. Thanks so much. Next on Squawk Pod, Operation Hope, Chairman, Founder, and CEO John Hope Bryant on the post-COVID economy. I think there's going to be two recoveries. You're going to have the for the investor class at the top, and you're going to have an L at the bottom, which are the hourly workers. That recession will feel like a depression. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella has now outlined some plans to double the number of black managers and senior leaders in the U.S. of that company over the next five years. And he said senior executives would be judged for promotions and rewards on their progress in advancing diversity and inclusion. At last count, black workers represent just about 4.5 percent of Microsoft's U.S. workforce right now. Uh, amid the renewed focus on diversity in the board, we want to get a checkup on how things have changed over the last year. Seema Modi has the exclusive data on that and that story right now. Seema, good morning. Good morning, Andrew. In recent weeks, companies have been quick to issue public statements and make financial pledges towards tackling racial injustice and embracing diversity. Yet, fresh analysis of the top 200 companies on the S&P 500 shows people of color make up only 20 percent of directors, up just 1 percent from the same period last year, according to data from Spencer Stewart. And the percentage of black independent directors has decreased from 13 to 11 percent in the year prior. What's more is that minority women have seen no progress in board representation, stuck at 10 percent, which raises the question, can diversity be a priority for a company if it's not reflected at the top, even though report after report shows that having different perspectives in the boardroom increases a company's competitiveness? Now, a closer look at specific sectors shows real estate, energy and utilities are the least diverse at the board level. HIP Investor Ratings says part of the reason is because these businesses, businesses tend to have longer capital investment cycles and are less consumer-facing. One bright spot, companies with, with diverse boards, 71% have two or more minority directors. That's a slight uptick from last year. Andrew? Hey, hey Seema, when, when you think about the issues uh, that have created this problem, one of the things you hear about all the time is pipeline. That's, that, that's one of the, uh, the rationales for, and challenges. 
How quickly, to the extent that there's a, a timeline for all of this, to the extent that people are talking, companies are now saying, we can do this. Um, do you think this is a, I mean, and because we're, every year we're going to judge this, right? Is this a one year, now, I don't want to say it's going to be a one year issue because it's not, but to, to the extent we can get a step change on this issue, do you think it's a five year out situation? Do you think it's a decade out? Are people going to say that's too slow? What do you think? Yeah, I think it really depends on the company, uh, Andrew, whether it's a smaller business or a larger company that has the resources available to make those changes, perhaps uh, at a faster rate. I think in general, when you speak to diversity officers at different publicly listed companies, they'll say diversity is a priority, but very few are making it a metric when evaluating a, a manager's performance. So in other words, when that manager is up for their performance review, in addition to looking at the quality of the work, how productive they are, uh, how did that manager uh, develop the, his or her team? Did they prioritize gender and racial diversity? I think that you're starting to see come up in more meetings as this dis- discussion really continues across the nation. Right. Seema, appreciate it. Uh, thanks for bringing us those numbers. As Andrew mentioned, supporting diverse boardrooms requires setting up a diverse talent pipeline. But it's hard to consider a pipeline without considering the barriers that often hinder someone's journey there. That's where our next guest, John Hope Bryant, comes in. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope, a not-for-profit provider of financial literacy and economic education in the U.S. He's devoted his life to eliminating the economic disparity between Americans of color and their white counterparts. John has advised Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, and he has penned three books on the intersection of leadership, capitalism, and financial inclusion in America. He started Operation Hope in the wake of the L.A. riots in 1992 and has since grown it into a 40-company force for engaging the underbanked in this country. During this pandemic, while business owners waited and still wait in many cases for federal support to arrive, Operation Hope has been working with U.S. Bank, UPS, and Fifth Third Bank to provide financial coaching for entrepreneurs affected by the coronavirus. Here's Becky Quick. And John, it's good to see you. How are you doing these days? I'm both very, very um, hopeful uh, for the reset Mm -hmm. and very sad that I didn't convince enough of banking and corporate America do the right thing after the the last Rodney King riot of 1992. And I think if we could have gotten credit scores up 100 points in these neighborhoods, Becky, got the economic energy up, the optimism up, the approvability up, that you would see crime and go down and jobs. I mean, we, you'd have stability that folks would ride this out. So I feel a little sad that I haven't done my job enough. But, you know, uh, rainbows only follow storms. I'm on the game. Hey, John, what, what are you hearing right now from entrepreneurs? What are you hearing in, in neighborhoods about how things are going and, and how people are weathering this? Well, you know, black folks have been doing so much with so little for so long. Becky, we can almost do anything with nothing. Uh, they are extra- extraordinarily resilient. Um, and right there down the street from your studio, uh, you have uh, uh, young lady Ellen LaVar on East 72nd Street, uh, who has been in business for, for 30 years. Um, when this hit, she did not have a strong banking relationship. Uh, she went to go to a major bank there in New York and stood in line behind millionaires and couldn't get service. Uh, somebody, Susan Taylor, a friend of ours from Cares Network, referred her to Operation Hope. Within 24 hours, she got $65,000, was able to put her people back on the payroll, and she's operating doing hair in a safe and distance way uh, uh, now uh, there in New York. Uh, resiliency. But she doesn't know what's going to come next. Um, there's a young lady named Brenda Holland that was uh, one of our clients. 
who I'm told raised her credit score. She's a daycare and it raised her credit score from, it says here, from 598 to 675. Quickly with our coaching and counseling, she had errors in her credit report. She couldn't get her approved for traditional financing before COVID. Uh, we were able to get her in line. She was ignored by a major bank. Uh, get her in line, and she got approved uh, within 48 hours. Uh, she has a daycare that has 46 kids in it, down to eight. She now has to do all kind of preparation that takes 10 minutes for each client, each, uh, each kid, I mean. And she's doing all that with a positive attitude, uh, and her employees are able to come back because of the, the short-term financing. Uh, and she is uh, part of the American spirit. But once again, she's uh, sort of, she's got too much month at the end of her money, and she had that problem before COVID hit. Half of black-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, don't know if they can survive more than 14 days based on liquidity. Um, half of minority-owned businesses got financing uh, in comparison to their mainstream counterparts. A lot of this part is because they don't have a coach, they don't have an advocate, and they, they weren't prepared uh, when this hit. Uh, because they were so busy just fighting hand-to-hand combat. Um, so I, I think there's going to be two recoveries. You're going to have the for the investor class uh, at the top that has the benefit of, of higher education and relationship capital and lots of, uh, uh, of liquidity. Uh, and you're going to have that hit with the stimulus third, fourth quarter of this year. You're going to have an, a, a, an L at the bottom, which are the hourly workers, 40% of this country, who make $40,000 a year with a high school education and minority small businesses, that recession will feel like a depression. We need to, we have a bifurcated recovery and economy. We need to reconnect the ladder. Hey, John, just in talking to some of the senators we've had on this week and last week, maybe the week before, there there is a sense that at least among some of them, there's a bit of fatigue. They They think that they've spent so much already. They say there's still money left in the PPP that hasn't been tapped. They'd like to see what happens before they commit additional funds. Um, if you could talk to them, what would you tell them? Go do something. Uh, PhDs are to good, but PhDs are better. Uh, I mean, like, uh, fund financial coaching of the churches, the nonprofits, the infrastructure in this community, in this country, that can naturally plug in to these small businesses to get them coached up so they can actually get the $100 billion that's sitting at the SBA. Uh, uh, approve right now a massive new uh, Marshall Plan, at least elements of it, uh, that give people hope. You need, you need you know, just a short term. What we have now, <laughs> we have now is a Band-Aid for the amputated leg. Okay, the leg was broken before this. Now it's amputated. What I need is a uh, a, prosthetic, a prosthetic that's made of titanium with a silicone valley chip in it with a software upgrade. So you come back not back but better. We need back. We need not just back. We need better. We need a software upgrade. We need the private sector to know that they are being incentivized at scale to do massive internships, not two or three, on hundreds of internships, incentivized to do massive apprenticeships, incentivized to fund minority small businesses through the gap, like my friend Dan Schulman is doing at PayPal, uh, and even Henry Kravitz is thinking about doing at KKR. People need to get out of their comfort zones. I'm seeing the private sector lead. I'm seeing the government go, uh, well, you know, I think we'll get through this. No, we won't get through this. It needs Leadership. The Bible says, "Well, there is no vision, the people perish." I'm saying, get off of your your duff uh, and 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 hustle and sweat as much as my clients are, whoever you are, Republican and Democrat. This is the time for the get it done party. It's time to get it done. This is our moment right now for us to lean in, all of us, and do more. This is not time for business as usual. 
Hey, John, a lot of times you talk about the people you've been talking to in Washington and having a real sense of hope, but it sounds like you are more frustrated. Are, are you running into brick walls at this point? Maybe maybe the government's kind of you know, caught up with the bigger issues that they're trying to deal with. You feel like this is falling and slipping between the cracks right now? I feel that people, uh, it's, it's, it's almost, it's interesting. Like somebody told me recently, a loved one, that when they were in school in, in West Virginia, the only black kid, they were elected to the uh, to be the homecoming queen, uh, and then they were t- turned down for the cheerleading squad. The problem was that the parents were voting for the cheerleading squad, even though, by the way, the girl's friends had voted her already to be cheerleading captain. She was turned down for that, and the kids were voting for mm. the homecoming queen. It's like the problem. The, the the adults were the problem. You have these young people in the streets right now with a sense of urgency, white kids and black kids, protesting. Uh, uh, legally and and, and uh, uh, non-violently, listen to them. You have adults who go, you know, I'm tired. Nobody cares if you're tired. <laughs> this is not about you, and it's not normal. What we're going through right now, this country cannot just continue to sustain what we've experienced in the last two or three weeks alone. Yet alone, COVID-19. I'm extraordinarily hopeful because I think this is a moment for us to reset everything. But we need to have a sense of urgency. We need to make the important feel urgent. And we need to move on massive systemic changes right now, th- this year. I mean, this is time for, for a, a rainbow after the storm. John, thank you. It's great to see you. And we'll check in with you again soon, OK? Thanks for all you do. Being a light on the hill, all three of you. Great to see you. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. New York City is opening up further ahead of the July 4th holiday weekend. Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing that the beaches in the city will be open to the public for swimming on July 1st. He urged people, however, to maintain social distancing and face coverings even when they're at the beach. The city will also be holding scattered fireworks shows this year. They'll be starting on Monday. They'll last five minutes each, and the timing won't be announced to try and prevent crowds from gathering. They'll culminate with a grand finale on July 4th over the Empire State Building and an NBC broadcast with musical guests. Joe? Yep. Fireworks uh, not looking good for a lot of places uh, this year. Uh, Yeah, I have three people who are really happy about that. Uh, Well, they're not really people, but... The uh, dogs? Yeah, oh, yeah. (laughs) They're really, really happy. I mean, what would, think if you were a dog, it's like, 
every once in a while that happens and they're like, oh, my God, what what is that? It would be frightening. It would be frightening. Right. If you had no idea, it's like thunder. They think it's coming when they hear thunder. That's bad enough. Anyway. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.